0: Before we get started, a couple things. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're slowing down for the law. But one thing is this. There is so much that goes on behind the scenes. And one of the main things is our elder group. Our our men who help hold the theological underpinnings of the church. And for the past several years, one of those men has been Alan Palmer. And he's sitting over here. And we should give him a, a, a hand. Would you guys? Alan, thank you, man. Because... He's stepping off that role, and uh, many other things going on, there's no failing, there's nothing, this is free to do that on and off, and, and so, man, so grateful for him and the way that he's held to the gospel for our church, and continue to count him as a dear friend and brother, grateful for him, man. We're also putting before the body. We're hoping to add several elders in the next months, but one right away we're putting before you. And how our church works is that we put men before you because they need to be qualified with First Timothy 3. So Kevin Kinland has agreed to put himself forward for that. But if you know something about Kevin that disqualifies him, we do want to know. We know nothing of that. The elders are recommending him. But what we do is we put him before you, and then we wait several weeks for you to, to if you have anything, bring it to one of the elders, any of the elders, um, and before we affirm him for our body. So, super excited for that. Kevin's not here, so I can say we're grateful that he's willing to step into that role. And, uh, yeah, fantastic. Okay, the other thing I wanted to say was hey, a big thank you to Nathan Barbo. I, I don't know where he's here. Usually he's behind the scenes with the kids, but last week up here in the pulpit, and fantastic to listen to him while I was far away in California, and I'm so glad to be back. But one of the blessings was to hear him preach, and thankful for him. So, fantastic. Okay, let's dive into Exodus. This is a, um, interesting and important for us. We've come to this really high point, and it's one of the most difficult things for me as your pastor. I love to take big portions of the Bible and make them clear in context. But for the next several weeks, we're going to take tiny portions of the Bible, but hopefully still in context. <laughs> because this is so important for you and me. This, if you will, is the, one of the centers of your very Christian life, how you decide you're going to take and understand this portion of the Bible. It's called the Ten Commandments, the law. And, and books are written, and if you look at catechisms, for example, the, the shorter catechism by Martin Luther, most of it is about the Ten Commandments. How you take these things becomes how you're going to live your Christian life, what you're going to think of other people. Very, very important. So, two weeks ago, we started with how Jesus took them, and we looked at Matthew 5 and how He didn't lower them and make them hurdleable and doable. He raised them. The law is so high, it's not just about what you do, it's about your heart. You can't even have lust in your heart or be angry with your brother or all these things become actually breaking the Ten Commandments. So, it showed us what the purpose of these Ten Commandments are like Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we quoted this, it says the whole point of the Lord's teaching was to show us that it is impossible, speaking of the Ten Commandments. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' teaching was to show us that we could not do it. Man, that is radical if you start to think about the implications. Or as uh, Jay Gretchen Machen, one of the deep Princeton theologians that really grounded Christianity in our country, in Protestantism, he said, A low view of the law always brings legalism. A high view of the law makes men seekers after grace. Pray that the high view may prevail. See, low view means that you think you can do it. High view means you know you can't even now there's a danger because we are going to look at these Ten Commandments and, and, and the danger is you kind of let man, they've, I've, I've memorized them I've seen them on the walls of buildings I taught them in Sunday school and you start thinking, yeah, I know these and I'm okay I actually kind of do them I, I, or, or maybe, maybe even you start to think, well, yeah, I haven't always done them, but I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards doing them now I will do them an idea that this is our task, you know? So, so, this is what ties into our whole view of life, that God does good for the good doers. That, that's those who keep the law. God does bad for those who don't. Right? I mean, I mean, that's the world. In fact, I... Okay, one picture. We went to Disneyland. One picture from Disneyland. You think what this ride is. I took a picture from the ride. Here it is. Real rewards... That's gonna go. Real rewards await those who choose wisely. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that kind of true? Isn't that the world teaches? And boy, if you choose wisely, then good things will happen. And and then I know that's true in the world. If I choose the right things, if I apply myself, if I do stuff, then good things will happen. This is a Disneyland sign. Okay, Indiana Jones. Right. So so, but it's there on the wall for us, and it's reasonable, and it. It's evil, in the sense that that's ever true in Christianity. Rewards await your meritorious choosing of good. It's the world. The churches are really similar, right? We exist, this is very common, we exist to love God and love people. You've heard our problems with that. Well, if if, if that's the truth, you're not doing very well. Or maybe I could say it another way. This is from another church. says, God uses obedient people of courageous faith to build his kingdom. Man, that sounds good. God uses obedient people of courageous faith. I just wonder if that person's read the Bible. Because God uses losers and failures to do incredible things. You know, I, I I feel like we're all in that group, really. I, I feel, don't you? Sometimes I feel like Nathan, the prophet, speaking. You are the man, and he's not saying something good. He's saying he's saying you're the you're the mess up, right? So these Ten Commandments, they aren't bad. They aren't outdated. They're not to be ignored. They're, they're perfect. They, they demand more than we can give. The law doesn't guide us. It accuses us. The commands aren't enablements. They're impossibilities. Now, I, I say that. <laughs> I know it doesn't necessarily touch your heart. And really, that's my goal today is to see what God requires even to throw yourself at it and then to realize you ought to throw yourself at it. But, but it becomes these instructions, really, if you can be honest, that they are not being followed by you. You yourself. Right, today, right now. And, and, and that's, that's not the danger for you. The danger is that you're gonna say, I will, with a little help from my friend, the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at each perfect command. We're starting with the first two commands. They go together. They're given here um, here at the mountain. And you need to hear God's law. So that's what we're starting in chapter 20. And we're in verses, we'll read one through six. And we'll take a look. Here we are. The Ten Commandments. This is what God's going to write in stone with his own finger. These are important. So God spoke all these words. Saying, I am Yahweh your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. Failure to keep this is a failure to keep all of them. But it it doesn't seem too bad, does it? You shall have no other gods before you. I I don't have other gods before God. I, I don't, I don't. I believe there is a God. I believe he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I believe he brought the people out. Of, uh, he's God. I, I, I'm, I'm good with the first commandment. And so I, I feel that. And then there's, there's this command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. Okay, I'm getting a little confused, but I, I, I think I'm still okay. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, you know, I kind of see how this goes with the first, don't you? I mean, there, there's no other gods over our supreme God, and so no carved images, no idols that we would worship. And again, I'm kind of tempted to think, you know, no problem, that this is good. Uh, Dax, I thought you said these were super hard, like impossible hard. But, but I don't make carved images, That's primitive stuff. Pagan cultures never never bowed down to idols. I've never served them. I I can't even tell you the names of the Greek gods. I failed Greek mythology in high school. I stay away from that stuff. Well, (laughs) God is a jealous God, right? I get that part. If he will find you out, it's a little scary, but I'm comforted by the idea that I don't do this, so I'm in the clear, and and before you join me patting myself on the back for not having family shrines or totem poles in my backyard. What is he really saying? What's, what's, What's going on, right? This is not about atheism. This is not about pagan practices that we don't do anymore. This is about idolatry. The first two commandments are about idolatry. We think this is a primitive people problem, most of us, if you're asking us to describe yourself with five words, nobody's gonna pick idolater. I'll pick something else. So, but idolatry maybe isn't what you think it is. I mean, did you hear God? He said, don't have anything before him. And idolatry isn't just about gold statues or carved images. It's not about having having something that you worship in the closet. It's about having anything before God. This is a really big deal. Right? Tim Keller. (laughs) Wonderful on this area. He's written books on it called Counterfeit God. Says the biblical concept of idolatry is extremely sophisticated. Idolatry is anything that gives your life meaning besides God. So it's not some far-off pagan practice. David, it's never been. I mean, even even three centuries ago, David Clarkson, a a Puritan preacher, a good one, says of of this, says, if we're, uh, few will own it, but nothing is more common than idolatry. John Calvin, you know John Calvin, he said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. (laughs) <laughs> oh whoa, 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 wait a minute. I get that you're saying it's deeper, but, but 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 I don't I don't make idols. Okay, that's why we need a closer look. Right? Idolatry. It's there on the screen. It's saying, okay, anything more important to you than God? Is there anything more important to you than God? I'd like you to look for a minute in the mirror with me about how we live today. Not about how they lived thousands of years ago, not hundreds of years ago, however long it was. You, now, right? Do you have anything before God? Anything more important to you? that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. They're mostly good things, right? Treasured things. Maybe it's your kids or your job or your dreams or your reputation or your work. But those are just words. And, 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 and so think with me we're constantly taking the good gifts of god and making them into our objects of worship. Again, you're going you're going to fight this. You're going to say, "No, I don't. I come to Sunday morning and worship and worship is singing songs." No, and worship is not singing songs. Worship is worship. It's giving weight to something. What do you give weight to today? This is a big deal. I'm a really devoted mother, you might say. I pour my heart out as a realtor. I'm a person of integrity. What's, what's the thing that you grasp hard, you know? Our actions flow out of our hearts, and so our idols are at that level. They run deeper than you think. They are surface idols that you can grab on real easy, like money or possessions, right? Health. But, but why, do we, why do we idolize those things? it gets deeper. Why do I cheat on my tax form? I I don't think it's fair what they're doing. What's the whole concept of fairness to you? See, there's stuff going on underneath for why we do what we do. Why why do you have to win? Why do you have to be right? All these things that we go in our hearts and they're they're because there's something deeper and it's more important to us than God. I mean, it's dumb stuff, right? Because C- I know God tells me not to lie. But there I am, and my wife's looking at me. So what do you have for lunch, Dax? I had the bacon cheeseburger. But I know she's going to be sad about that. So I lie. Oh, not much lunch today. It wasn't very big bacon cheeseburger. It's a little one. It's a, the Wendy's $6 meal, you know. It's, they're really tiny. Why am I lying? When God Almighty says, don't lie. Do I have something be- before? Yeah, I have this fear that my wife's not going to accept me. This, this lack of a feeling that, that she really loves me enough to not, not care about that. Sorry, I'm sorry to learn about that on Sunday morning dear. Bummer. Dude, it's gonna be a bad afternoon. No, 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 but that's the thing, right? We do these things. We do them. Why do we do them? Because we're stupid. What are we stupid? We put other things before God. God is not my waking thought. God is not my every moment. I start to have other things that intrude in, right? We turn good things. Relationships. We ruin them because we put weight on them that they were never meant to bear. They can't hold it. Our kids can't hold the idolatry we put on them because our whole value is how they turn out. How do I know that? Because if someone criticizes my kid, I'm going to kick them or tackle them or something. I, I know, I, I, start to have, I start to look and it takes away our enjoyment of the good things because my sense of security, my worth, my safety it's dependent on how my, my kids are doing or how my job's going or how people think of me and, 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 and yeah this is true, you know, I've done marriage counseling for many, many years now, over and over one spouse is depending on the other spouse or something they can't give them, they can't be That's a sign of idolatry, right? You're looking for other things to give you what only God can give you. You can't have anything before God. Maybe love is all you think you need. Maybe you think money changes everything. Maybe success will will, will solve any problem you have. Maybe power and position will, will, will conquer your problems. Lie, lie, lie. You worship them. Romantic love or overcome with the desire to be married. Family, you want your family to be successful and fine. Achievement and health and fitness and hard work, duty, moral virtue, individual freedom, personal affluence, some sort of fulfillment. I'm actually quoting to you from Tim Keller's book about different idols that he raises up. I wonder which ones have you. But I, I guarantee you that some of them do. I don't know you well enough to know. The problem isn't avoid carved statues, right? The problem is that we are beset with idols all around. We are worshippers. We are created and designed and wired for worship, and, and that's our value and even in these commands that were given, right? Do you remember, as an example, when, when Jesus had the rich young ruler that came there in, in, in Matthew? That's in Mark, both, but in Mark's, Mark's gospel is in chapter 10. And, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I have eternal life? And he says, well, well you keep the Ten Commandments. He says, I've done all of them. And, and then he says this, if you can go to the next slide. He says, says, Jesus looks at this rich young ruler. He loved him. He said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Put me first over your money. The guy walked away. Sad, because he had a bunch of stuff. What does that mean? It means he didn't keep the Ten Commandments. He didn't keep the first one, which is you shall have nothing before God, right? He didn't keep the Ten Commandments. And Jesus was showing him right there you would say, "Well,, I'll, I'd never do that. man if Jesus came, he said, "Give up my money and follow me. I'm doing that. I have decided to follow Jesus. no turning back. He's number one. But then he's not really number one. The number one idol most of us have is ourselves. We worship ourselves. That's the deception in the garden, right? You can come, you can be like God. Here, here's something, you can, your eyes can be opened to the knowledge of how you can be like God and so we get on this pathway to be like God and we start climbing ladders to be like God. You trust yourself, you trust your ability, your personality, your gifts, your smarts, your morality, your spirituality, your perseverance, your effort, your fruits. All of these things function as your real savior, you depend on them for your value in your thinking, Sometimes it's the whole ball of wax. Sometimes what you're what you're worshiping is, is is obtaining a life that's that's generally blessed and accepted, and then and, and then all of a sudden circumstances slam you, some financial disaster, and your life changes like that, and you're devastated. Why? Because God shouldn't do that. God needs to act a certain way. This is the pathway many of us go down for self-idolatry. God shouldn't act like that. I know what God acts like. It's this way, and the way becomes our God, and God has to follow his way. I have to find ways to excuse him for doing things I find wrong. One person lives and another dies. There must be a reason I can understand that makes sense to me. Cancer patients must have smoked. Car wreck people must have not kept up their car maintenance. Whatever it is, you try and rationalize things and not have God be God. Have God answer to your sense of fairness and justice. He has to follow the rules that I think he's made. This is also idolatry, right? You putting you before God. They got a good biblical example of that all over, but particularly a guy named Jonah. Remember him? Jonah's like God told him, go speak to the Ninevites and tell him about, you know, they're, I'm going to kill him. And Jonah was so mad. He went the other way. And goes down and down and down into the ship, eventually gets tossed overboard. And as he's floating down to the bottom, he prays this prayer. It's in Jonah 2.8. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now that's interesting because he hasn't been paying attention to vain idols. He hasn't been bowing down to Baal or to some other idol. He's been following himself and running from God, right? That's what he's been doing. And as he floats down, he's going, Oh, man. Forgive me, God. You're the only God. I won't put anything before... And God... Brings this fish along and spits him out. and He goes to Nineveh and does all this stuff. The story's not over, you know. It's actually really important that the story's not over. It's not this story of, oh, I was such a bad person and then my eyes got opened and I'm better now because there's Jonah and he goes on the hillside after he's done all this stuff and after he's prayed this prayer and he realizes the only thing is the steadfast love of God and not idols and he sits there and God gives him this plant that comes over him that gives him shade and then God takes it away. What is he? He's ticked. Why? God, what are you doing? Right? I mean, that's a bold thing that at least he said, but it's there for our our understanding that we don't get better. We know this. I know I shouldn't have idolatry. I know I can't put anything before God, and yet I'm mad at him for not doing the things I think he should do. I wouldn't say it like that. I'm being kind of honest with you guys. Mostly I've whapped that up with, well, oh, God will be God. I'm just suffering here. <laughs> See, his problem with idolatry doesn't go away. And the idolatry is himself. And what he wants versus what God actually has. Because God has, if if you would think about it, promised that he has us and we're his kids and we're his treasure. And anything that happens is in his hand. And yet these things that happen to me can't really be him. He can't act that way. Says who? Says me. Funny you think that way. God is over everything. He provides everything you need. Why would you ever doubt for a moment that he has you, that he's always had you forever and ever? Idolatry. Here it is, very close to unbelief, right? We want God to do what we want him to do. We don't trust him. He is not our everything. That's the mirror, and that's what it shows you. Not not just me, you. You. Right, That's idolatry because God is love and you still fear. God is love. Perfect love does what? Cast out fear. Why are you afraid? Because the fear, right? You often can think of these idols and even yourself in idolatry around what you fear the most. I'm not really talking about sharks or about dark corners, although you could make cases for that. What I'm talking about is, is, is normal stuff that actually moves you not just makes your heart beat faster in a movie, right? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm talking about if, if your greatest fear is rejection, then you worship approval. I got to get approval. If your greatest fear is suffering, then you're gonna you're gonna fight hard to avoid that. So comfort, right, becomes absolutely critical to you. If you fear uncertainty, you worship control. If you fear insignificance, you worship power. Man, if I had enough of my own ability to make choices on my own so other people couldn't hurt me. I'm gonna get it. If you fear loneliness, then you worship relationships. Yours are so important for you to have people around you because man, to be alone is the very worst thing you could ever have, except you're never alone because God's with you always. Yeah, but God's not enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, if you feel failure, you'll, you'll worship achievement. You'll worship these things to rescue you, and then they reveal what has captured, captured your heart, and then they reveal what? Idols. These are, this is the word I'm using idols. Idolatry. I tell you the truth, these commands in the Ten Commandments are impossibly hard if you would open your eyes to them. You are condemned because you continue to put your trust and your hope in the wrong things, even after conversion. By conversion, I mean you prayed the prayer. These are deep things, and they're wrong. They ought not be. You ought to be better. You ought and have a duty to have God first all the time. That means every time you open your eyes, every moment you take a breath, every thought that goes through your heart needs to be, oh, my God, he is everything. I should be tearing you away from your Bible to go to work because you just can't get enough of reading the Word of God. Not not you made it through half an hour and you're so excited. I should never have a conversation that doesn't have your thankfulness at what God's given you moment by moment. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't you dare make any other images. Above earth, below earth, anything. And God is a jealous God. And he visits sin upon you and your family. That's what it says. What you going to (laughs) do? Right? Because what we're going towards then becomes really important. This is not a low thing. This is the thing that gets us all. Ten commandments do. So I've spent some time right here as we go on to, to, to receiving freedom. I've spent some time trying to show you the depths of this command. I hope you see it, and I hope you see it applied to you. Right? You're an idolater. You worship, give value and weight to many other things than God. God is not your every thought. He is not your every breath. Dependence on him is not your life. You worship you and you hear that if you're hearing that this morning and and, and you'll hear it and you'll say, well, thanks Dax, I guess. It's kind of a bummer sermon, but I'll work on that. I'll stop being an idolater. I'll do better. Maybe in my life I can start not idolatizing so much, I'll I'll advance in non-idolatry. But idolatry is tricky. I mean, you worship, you give value to many things, right? And, and you get more and more as you start to work on them and improve the image that you're looking at in the mirror that's telling you this part's ugly and this part's beautiful and you start on them and you're working on them and you're doing the right things and you're making a mess. And you're getting entangled in what? Yourself. Like, even you working on the idolatry is about you focusing on your navel. Now you're looking at your belly and you're thinking, man, I got to get slimmer. I got to go to the workout room. There's nothing wrong with the workout room, but it is focused on yourself. Even my focusing on the idolatry and starting to work on it gets me entrapped because I start depending on what I'm doing to try and get out of it and working on the things. And, 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 and then I think that's my goal. And you'd better be better if that's where you're going with this, then your salvation is dependent on your effort. You say, well, we're not talking salvation. Okay, your blessing, God's pleasure with you. However, I don't care how you want to say it. I care about the concept because Jesus said his burden is easy. Jesus said, come to me, all will hear heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And what you're describing when you go on this pathway is not rest. He means, right, when we come to him, he gives us everything we need, everything. We don't need to depend on ourselves to satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts. That's an exhausting way that we live. Freedom comes by turning and trusting Jesus is the Christian message. Freedom comes by believing Jesus has you. You can enjoy what is, not what you feel you ought to be. So relationships and life, because you don't need them to save you, your failure is expected. Forgiveness comes in in, in low expectations. This is a view I call a high view of the law and a low anthropology. Anthropology is people. I don't think very highly of you. Sorry. I'm looking at this side of the room. These guys are different. You guys, I think, really. no. Right? If you think highly, like people are going to do a bunch of stuff great for you, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to work. Case in point yourself. I mean, that's the whole point of the Bible, right? Low anthropology. The law condemns you. You don't actually do it. So, so what happens is that we see not a stopping of the law. The odds don't go away. but But the promise of god comes in right he's fulfilled them all for us jesus the life-giving god speaks death to our greatest fears he says you're free to enemies you're friends to the lost you're found to the wounded you're healed to the loveless i love you there's nothing you can do about it it's really really good news you don't have to define love and happiness on your own the law is this burdensome peace because of our assessment of our ability that's the high anthropology part that's bad but but if you keep the law high and you realize you have low anthropology we can't do it not even with the spirit helping you know i just need a little help for my friend no that just that just shifts the burden more on you because then if i really point out your sin and failure it would be because you haven't tapped in enough and it's not his fault he's perfect just back to you again So, the law is burdensome because of that. And God is God. He does not have to act a certain way. He is so far above you. He is not limited by your standards or your thinking about what the Bible means. He is God. Sorry, that's me getting excited. Why am I excited? Because, because he has said what he's going to do, right? He promises that he loves you. We need to trust the promise. Everybody dies, and then resurrection happens. He provides that as he will, and that's okay. It's okay to work hard. It's okay to breathe and enjoy. It's okay to try and be the best you can be. But under all of this incredible reality of it is finished. He is your God, not you. None of it is necessary. What, what else do we need? We're foolish idolaters that, that, that sort of look to things that are infinitely smaller than Jesus to give us value. And even, even then God loves us and says, hey, look to me. And he's there. You get to lay things down if you'd like to. It's not about becoming. Unless you think becoming is becoming dead come to him and he gives rest. Idols are grace stealers because they create unreality. We are longing not for what God is doing, but the pride of what we want to be. Make no mistake, dear family. God is at work on you. And he is God, you will not stop him. He promises good to you. It is coming. The gospel is good news for us, not by us. We appear in the stories, you know, but as sinners rescued. The <sighs> time for, a couple, but you gotta hear. So, so, so think it through with me, just the stories of the Old Testament are about this. Go to Genesis with me. I was talking to a good friend about this this week, and, and we are talking about the, the Joseph story. Remember how Joseph, and he goes down to Egypt, and his brothers, they were gonna kill him, but instead they put him in a, in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery, and he went down as a slave to Egypt. Think about the people reading that, that book. They are the tribes. Their great-great-great-grandparents are listed there as the baddies. They're the bad guys. They're so the people who actually wanted to kill their brother, eventually sent him into slavery. And Jacob, who loved, loved his kid. And for 40 plus years, they're hiding that sin. Think about the guilt of them always making sure they don't talk. Think about the dad going, how I miss Joseph and wish he was okay. Oh, if me, Joseph was here. Silence from the kids. 40 years. Think about that sin that they hid, and the horrible life they had. And then finally, think about the years later when they go down to Egypt and and what's happened by the hand of God through their sin is not that Joseph isn't just alive, he's now essentially the king of Egypt. By who? The hand of God. God did what he wanted. There's a Savior. It's, It's actually in spite of these brothers, and yet it's for these brothers, and that's the message of the gospel. Not Oh, and they managed to change their ways. After three months of realizing they had misled their father, they decided, oh no. Actually, their dad was just as much a sinner as any of them. He favored the kid over his other kids. Is that good? No. It's stories of horror, and here's God working through them, and it's fantastic. And this is the Bible saying you guys are idolaters. You're sinners, and yet look at how I love you. Look at what I've done. Freedom is when the resources of the gospel smash any sense of need to secure anything Jesus hasn't provided for you. I bring my sin. I can enjoy your love and acceptance of me. I don't need it. Oh, and I say that, but I do need it. I want it. I long for it. Yeah, I'm an idolater. I didn't escape it. I'm just telling you the truth. And we're failures. Jesus did not say come to me to rescue, to rescue the world. You. Man, I sure hope that Dax comes to me so I can rescue the world. He rescued me. Right? He didn't say, come to me so that I would improve myself, that I would accomplish, accomplish some task. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest, rest from trying to do all this stuff. The Christian life, this is adjusting to your freedom that Jesus actually did it all for you. We're reminding ourselves because we forget and we're still idolaters. If we could see how radically free we are, man, our fears would, would fall away. We would have no fears. Would, therefore, we would not seek after this stuff that tries to assage our fears. Okay, I'm probably going too long, but I'll tell you. It's just clean, clear stuff at the end of the day that Jesus is everything and, and, and that the, the Ten Commandments are meant to push you to Jesus being everything. So, for example, he, here's one last example we will be done. It's Romans 5. Therefore, Romans 5, Paul writes, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous we know this this is the basic substitutionary atonement of jesus for you and for me that adam pushed us all that we we are aware of our sin and we sin so we die but here comes jesus and by his action alone we are made righteous nothing that i do right the, 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 and so one pastor i know i love these little lists he, he made this little list, so he went this way. Listen, the first Adam sin brought thorns to us. The last Adam bore thorns for us. That's Jesus, right? The first Adam substituted for God. The last Adam substituted himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore sin on a tree. The first Adam brought condemnation. We realize the law and we're bad. The last Adam brought salvation for mankind. Trust him, he did it. The first Adam failed in Eden, but Jesus Christ succeeded in Gethsemane. Adam's self in in Eden took life from you and me, but Jesus' suffering and selflessness in Gethsemane gives life to us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and he puts himself where we deserve to be. Think through the wonder of that with me this morning. This is the message of Christianity. If it's anything else, we are totally, totally sunk. Right? We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. That's called idolatry. And what's our salvation? He put himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. It is us Who took the nails and we we pounded him to the cross and we crucified Jesus because he had to die for our sins. And there's this word, and what's the word? It's a word of mercy. Father, have mercy on them. They don't know what they're doing. It's never going to be about just reward. It's never going to be about how great you've become. It's never going to be about what you do. It's only your only hope is going to be mercy. And the more you get into that, the more deeply you grow in Christian walk and living, you realize the whole thing is about mercy, the grace of God for you. May you receive it. Jesus is amazing. May you see this law is perfect and right and true to drive you to that cross, to receive this great Savior that we might actually live. Okay, that's the first two commandments. We'll get eight more. They'll be great. They'll make us feel really bad. But you know what? The news is really good that Jesus did it for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done for us. Father, I pray for this group that is in this room today that we, together, might have a deepened sense of what you've done for us. Oh, the depth of your love for us that we can't even comprehend, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, I want to be better. Lord, I want us to be better. I want us to just shine forth with love and beauty and greatness. Forgive me, God, that I go after that instead of trusting you. Thank you that you are our light. You're our hope and you're everything for us. We put our trust in you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.